Hello and welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. My name is Garrett Morrison, and today's episode is brought to you by Be Dratty. So it is officially August, and in a lot of places, it is very hot and humid. So this is truly the season of the Dratty Sport Polo. It's just the ideal polo for playing golf or really doing anything outside in these hot summer months. Bidratti's sport fabric is fantastic. It combines the moisture wicking properties a technical fabric has with the fit, weight, comfort, and the great look that signature Dratty polos have always had. This is a sport polo that you can wear on the golf course, but looks great in any setting. I'm a particular fan of the Jimmy polo from the sport line. I've got a few of them and they have been my absolute go-tos all summer. Fried Egg listeners can get 25% off at bdratty.com by using the promo code TFE25. That's TFE25 at bdratty.com. Using this code is a great way to support our podcast and a great way to get a good deal on some clothing you'll love. All right, so Olympic golf got off to a pretty great start last week in Japan at Kasuma Gaseki Country Club with Xander Schauffele bringing home gold for the USA. And as I was watching, I just found myself wanting to know more about Japanese golf in general. You know, I I knew that golf was very popular there and that the country has produced a ton of great players, including this year's Masters champion Hideki Matsuyama. And I knew there were some wonderful courses, including several highly ranked ones designed by Charles Hugh Allison in the 1930s. But to be honest, I didn't know much more. So I decided to call up Michael Wolf, who is a golf architecture and golf history nut. If you're on Twitter, you know him as Bama Bearcat. Great follow, posts a bunch of interesting vintage photos and things like that. And he has a massive enthusiasm for golf in Japan. He's traveled there a couple of times, played a bunch of courses, and has done a lot of research into the history of those courses. So I thought it just would be fun to pick his brain about the subject. Now, I want to be clear, and Michael wants to be clear, that he is not from Japan. He's an American. And so we're not trying to offer an inside view of Japanese golf culture. This is very much from a Western visitor's perspective and an appreciator's perspective. This is not an authoritative account. This is just from Michael's point of view. Wanted to be super clear about that. So with that said, here's Michael Wolf on golf in Japan. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Uh, So, Michael, you've visited Japan and played golf there a couple of times, most recently in 2019, I believe, before COVID hit. What were some of the highlights of your most recent trip there? The highlights, I would say, are the people and the culture, for sure. It's just it's a rare chance to play the game that I love, surrounded by a completely different experience where almost everything is different except the actual golf of hitting the ball in the hole, you know, the, whether it's how you arrive at the golf course or the, um, the customs on the golf course or the food you're eating, um, while you're playing golf or whatever it is, everything being so different, except hitting that ball in the hole. That's what I really enjoyed about it. 
So for an American, what are some of the specific things that would stand out as unique about the experience of golf in Japan? So I would come to it uh, from probably the higher end of golf, the the, the private courses. Um, most of the best golf courses in Japan are private um, and they're mostly older golf courses. They're golden age golf courses. And so it is very much a kind of a private golf experience and, and a very ritualized experience. Um, there's a pattern to how you um, play golf. And that pattern is kind of pretty consistent from club to club. So you're arriving um, in a sport coat. Uh, more often than not, you're arriving by train, or at least um, you're taking a taxi from the nearest train station. You, When you check in, they give you a kind of a leather wallet that has a little key inside and has a number. And you use that number and you use that key, for instance, for your locker or for if you're going to um, buy something in the if you need to buy something or you're going to get some food or something, you just kind of show them that number and then you pay when you check out at the end of the day. And that's true, whether it's a, a private club or, a, um, or it's a public golf course. The driving ranges are um, really just kind of uh, for warming up. It's funny, the even like the balls on the driving range are the balls are given to you almost like in um, egg, egg cartons. They're like individual little slots for the balls. So there's not like pyramids of balls or something. You ask for balls, they give you like a little container that holds the balls and you have to like pick the balls out of the little plastic container one by one. But even to um, then, you know, teeing off and playing. So it's mostly walking at the top clubs for sure. Everybody walks. Um, it's caddies. It's older female caddies. Hmm. The, um, the ladies will um, either drive a kind of a motorized uh, push cart type thing where they almost like um, ride in the back of the push cart, almost like a, almost like a, like a dog sled or something. Um, or they're actually physically pushing um, a cart that's got four bags on it and they are doing um, yardages. They're filling in divots, you know, for people and they're keeping up with everybody. And they kind of go down the middle of the um, middle of the fairway and you kind of walk back and forth to them to get the clubs and things like that. They don't give you any advice as far as how to play shots. Um, they don't read greens and things like that. It's more just the the nuts and bolts of, um, you know, keeping your clubs um, in order and handing you the stuff back and forth and things like that. Pace of play. I think um, at least the places I've been gets a, a bad rap. Um, so golf is definitely an all day experience in Japan, but it's that's more because um, they send golfers off of both the front nine and the back nine in the morning. And then most people take a break for lunch and then you have a separate tee time for your second nine holes. So you'll play nine holes, maybe you'll tee off at eight o'clock or nine o'clock in the morning. You'll play in two hours and it's it's normal pace of play like all of us, you know, experience a four round of golf. But you play the back nine and two, the front nine in two hours and then you take a break for lunch for an hour or two hours, however long you, you've made arrangements for to take a break for. And then you have a tee time to play the back nine. So you've got to be out back out to the 10th tee or the first tee um, for your second nine of the day. And then you play the, the, your second nine holes in, um, in two hours. And so it can take anywhere from five to six hours if you stop for lunch. If you want to go straight through and play in four hours, you can. Um, and people do that. What you can't do is play golf in the afternoon, um, which is hard to believe, I think, um, for <laughs> Americans. But um, so you, you either play you know, the front, the back, and then they switch, but that's it. Um, there is no second wave of golfers that goes out post, you know, post lunch or, or, or in the afternoon. I, um, I had to beg my way on to the Olympic uh, golf course, Kasuma Gaseki. I'd played Tokyo golf that morning, which is directly across the street. They, they share a property line. 
And um, I went out on Kasuma Gaseki at three o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm not exaggerating to say I was the only person on all 36 <laughs> holes of their golf course. And the, the the maintenance crew was looking at me like, who, who is this person? And why is he playing golf at three o'clock in the afternoon? There's, there's no such thing as sunset rounds. I believe um, it was explained to me a lot of that just has to do with where the golf courses are located and the fact that not just the golfers have to catch the train to get back into town and, and, and make that, you know, commute by a train, but also the employees. It's, it's, um, I guess an equivalent in the United States, um, for a top club would be seminal, you know, has a, has a, everybody has to be off their property by 5 PM or whatever. And, um, at most of the uh, top Japanese clubs that I was at, it's the same thing. And when you're done, there's maybe a post round drink or two and, and settling up any wagers, um, but then you you got to be on the road either to just because you got to catch the train to, to get back to where you're coming from, or um, just because they, you know, they want to be able to let their employees go home. Right. So one aspect of the private club scene in Japan that has been getting some run in American media these past couple of weeks, it's become one of those kind of uh, catnippy, clickbaity kinds of things, but but it's it's still kind of interesting and, and illustrative. It's the dress codes at Japanese golf clubs. What can you tell me about those dress codes and the logic behind them? I think it's, you know, for, for a visitor, I, I posted a, a little chart that they, they gave that, you know, so if you don't speak Japanese, you can at least figure out ahead of time what you're supposed to wear or not wear. You know, it's very in keeping with, with Japanese in general. I think, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very um, a place where, where customs and, and rules are followed and, and adhered to. And there's not a lot of complaining about it. And it's just kind of understood. And um, I find it kind of charming. I mean, I, you know, you, when I traveled around the world for golf, I, I don't understand people who want to go someplace and have the golf course, whether, whether it's a public course where it's perfectly acceptable to play in t-shirts and, and, you know, drink beer while you're on the golf course. Um, or if it's a very formal place like, like Muirfield in Scotland or whatever, when I go to places I want to do what they do. I don't want to try to get them to allow me to do what I usually do back home. I want to do whatever they're doing. So if I'm, For sure. if I'm in Scotland, I want to play golf in two and a half hours and uh, play alternate shot. And if I'm in Japan, I, I don't have any problem at all with their dress code. So it is very formal. I would say in general, um, they're very neat people. You know, it's a, it's a very well-dressed, but also kind of well-tailored. And you see that around, um, whether it's, you know, in downtown Tokyo, whether it's watching people come in in and out of the train stations, or whatever. I mean, it's a place where your shoes are polished and your, um, you know, your shirts are ironed. And it's, um, I don't think it's, they're doing that because it's a rule. I think they're doing it because that's what everyone does. And that's just, that's how it handles. And it's, that just carries over the golf. You know, people are dressed very neatly. The one that I would say definitely does stand out though, is that um, they, at the top clubs, it is a very um, kind of old school dress too. It's a lot of navies and grays and khakis. Um, it is discouraged in some places actually um, not allowed to wear loud colors. Um, and in particular, I think the color red um, in some places is not considered a good choice or an appropriate choice. And, and again, it's just, um, it, I think it's kind of in keeping with everything else, you know, they, right. they're speaking in lower tones and they're, um, you know, they're, they're dressing in quieter colors. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so the, uh, so the specific part of these dress codes that people focused on is the avoidance of brighter colors, right? Yeah. Basically it's, it, you know, khaki and, and white and, um, gray and, and blue, th those are kind of, uh, you know, the acceptable colors. And then, but if you show up, you know, wearing uh, plaid or, or wearing neon on, on yourself, that that's, that's not considered uh, polite proper. That's right. That's right. And, um, I think it's the juxtaposition with, um, you know, when, when we see 
uh, a lot of Japanese clothing brands or whatever that are worn by the tour professional players. That doesn't seem to match, but it's a, you know, it's a different kind of, uh, that's a different situation that they're in where they're advertising and they're, and they're trying to get attention versus um, at these, like I said, these private clubs where um, they're right. very comfortable with the rules that they have and the way they do things. You, you, not just the, uh, not just the clothes, but, but really um, whether it's all, all of the customs of playing golf at these places, you definitely, you can tell, you get the sense that they were doing it the exact same way 50 years ago. And that they're going to be doing it the exact same way 50 years from now. And, and I like that. I like that part of it. That's what I wanted to go see. <laughs> so taking a step back and, and, and taking a wider view, uh, could you give me just a general sense of how popular golf is in Japan and, uh, and, and maybe like which segments of the population it's, it's popular in? Yeah, I think it's popular with everybody. It's as close to a, a national sport, I would say, for participation is as in any other country um they have I, I, you know a lot of with the olympics going on it's been quoted quite a bit but they have more golf courses in japan than in england and scotland combined there are more golf courses in japan than anywhere um, else in the world other than the united states and um you know on top of that you have um you have the um driving the double decker driving ranges and just kind of all the ways that they've adapted to their love of golf even though it's it's one of the hardest places to play golf, or at least um, it has been for in the past um, with, you know, just the way their major cities are built up and their transportation hubs and things like that. It's it's very difficult for most people to actually get to a golf course and be able to play 18 holes of golf. So they've found other ways to do it. But yeah, golf on television. I mean, I, I was mentioning the the the, the um, ladies that, that caddy at a lot of the top clubs. They, they're all back in the caddy shack watching golf gambling on golf they're all in fantasy golf leagues they get it and they're they're into it right so as it pertains to the overall popularity of golf in japan is there a substantial flip side to the private club scene in the country you know, are there plenty of public courses that, that regular folks play? I don't know how much you know about this. Obviously, when you've traveled there, you focused on playing some of the most excellent courses there, which happen to be the private courses. Um, but is, is there a significant public golf scene in Japan, do you think? Um, it's it's definitely changing. There There is not a municipal golf scene of, of you know, government owned or, or uh, non-for-profit um, golf courses there. I don't I don't know of any of that. But there is um, more and more of what were private golf courses um, that couldn't make it coming out of the bust of, of the real estate in, in the 80s and 90s. There are more of those that are now allowing, you know, daily fee or semi-private, I guess we would say in the United States, just, just like in the United States, you know, where there was, you know, people put it in and, and you know, a bankruptcy or two later, a couple changes of ownership. And, and now the people that are running it now are maybe a little bit more willing to um, take players at least during the weekdays, maybe not on the weekends or at prime times, just like in the United States, but yes. And, and more online bookings too. There are more places now where you can book actually a tea time online. Now the quality of that golf course or, or how easy it is to get to those places, you know, there's a reason maybe they're willing to let anybody play golf there, but um, it's just best definitely changed. One other one um, that I definitely have to um, mention is their whole idea of park golf. So um, they do have lots of park golf courses. Um, and so park golf, for those that don't know, or there's a couple of different names for it, but um, it started on, if you think of J most, I think Americans think of, a, of Japan as one island, but it's actually, there's a, one main island and then there's a lot of other islands. But the, but the island, to the, the biggest island to the north of the main island, it started up there. 
So Park Golf, it's it's essentially a um, it's nine holes and it's in a public park. Usually there's three or four different nine hole loops um, that you can play, but but you you play nine holes is kind of the standard. Uh, so depending on which routing you're going to pick, and then you play with one ball that's like a wiffle ball, maybe like a solid wiffle ball. It's like a plastic plasticky ball, um, and it's big. It's it's much bigger than a regular golf ball. Maybe like our size of a racquetball, but it's it's also a solid. It's a solid ball. It's like a pla- solid plastic ball, and you play with a mallet that would be like a driver head. It's like the size of a driver head, and it's probably I don't know, like twelve degrees or fourteen degrees. And so you can't really get the ball very airborne, and and the holes are maybe anywhere from like a hundred yards to down to like thirty yards. Hmm. And there's a bunker or two sometimes, and you kind of got to play your way around them. So it's a little bit of a mix between like a par three course and like croquet. And you play, you know, fast. It's a show, social game, and and you're playing, but you know, you keep score, and and they have leagues and things like that. And you can borrow clubs and balls, or you can rent them right there. So it's again kind of. A little bit more than putt putt, not quite a full par three course. And it used to be that it was just old people that old people did it, and and they kind of were out in the park. And rather than going for a walk because they loved golf, you know, somebody came up with the idea of let's you know let's play golf in the park. And they've they they've gone with the single club in the in this ball so that nobody gets killed because you're the, the holes are really close to each other. Like you gotta pay attention, and that's I guess part of it is like head on a swivel type thing and being aware of the folks around you. I don't know whether this would work in downtown Chicago. Um, but, but it fits well enough with, um, the Japanese and, and, and particularly in the outlying areas. So that helps. That sounds fantastic. I I love that. I mean, I wish we would import that. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I mean, you know, when you talk about golf in Japan and the future of golf and kind of where it stands today versus 20 years ago and where it's headed, um, you have to mention the population as well. So there are, um, there are about 130 million people in Japan today. It peaked, the, the population peaked in 2014-15 is, is when the crest of their population was kind of the, the, the post-war baby boom. But um, it's, it's falling dramatically, and the, and the birth rates um, would suggest it's going to continue to fall dramatically. And, and they're saying, you know, within 30 years, it's going to be under 100 million people. So they're going to lose 30% of their population. On top of that, like in China, like in a lot of places... A lot of their young people are moving to the major cities, and particularly Tokyo. So you've got a situation where Tokyo is growing, and everywhere else in the country is losing thirty or forty or fifty percent of their population. And so, as it pertains to golf, I don't know that golf is going to get much cheaper or easier to access around Tokyo, which is you know a third of their whole population. Uh, but in the outlying areas, I think it's it's getting much easier to play golf in the outlying areas, and and uh, and much easier to access and cheaper. So if somebody's going to travel to Japan and play a little bit of golf, what advice would you give them? So the first thing you got to find a guy, you got to find a hookup um, because all the good courses, they're private and um, they are very, very hard to access. I mean, it's um, if we're talking about one of their top clubs, it's every bit as hard to play one of the top three or four clubs in Japan as it is to play Augusta National or Cypress Point or Pine Valley as far as access. That's the bad news. Um, The good news is, that if you can find someone who's a member who's willing to host you, those members of those clubs are very proud of their clubs and they're very happy to share the, uh, show them off to people they know or people they kind of trust as, as their guests. And because it's kind of a tight, tight-knit community and they know that if you're traveling all the way over there to play one of the courses, you're probably also interested in seeing some of the others. If you can kind of get your foot in the door at, at one club with one member to host you, um, it's not unusual to receive an offer 
for them to also offer to arrange for you to visit other um, clubs and, and see those golf courses while you're there. They, they know that if, if you're traveling that far, you, you'd probably want to do that. And it's a pretty well-defined set of top clubs. There are six or seven golf courses um, in Japan that are acknowledged by everyone as the top six or seven. And there, there's not a whole lot of dispute about it. The members of those clubs also tend to be members of more than one club. And it's a pretty tight-knit circle. And so you, um, if you can get your foot in the door, now it's hard to do. From practical standpoint, so once you get in and you've got an invitation to play one and, and maybe you've, you've been able to um, grow that into playing three or four places, you're going to want to buy train tickets ahead of time. So the uh, using the train system in Japan would be expensive to do on a ticket-by-ticket basis or a trip-by-trip basis. But to help with tourism, you can um, arrange ahead of time. To, you can go online and book a ticket for, I think you buy a seven-day ticket or 14-day ticket. And it has to be mailed to an address outside uh, of Japan, and it you know it has your name on it and everything, um, but it, it's at a huge discount. So for a couple of hundred dollars, you can get a you can get a pass that'll last you for for two weeks, and you can go wherever you want on any of the train lines. Hmm. Once you do that, then on the train lines, you can either book your train tickets ahead of time, and it's pretty easy to do online, or you can just walk up, and as long as there's an extra seat on the train, you can you can go anywhere, and it works for all the subways, and I think it even works for like the the ferries and things like that um, to out to some of the outer islands if you want to. Um, do some sightseeing with that. So um, you got to get your train ticket ahead of time. And then um, Tokyo, you're probably going to be in Tokyo, um, either coming or going. They actually offer a free translator for a day. So um, you can, they have a service where I, the ones that I've um, been hooked up with tend to be, I think it's like old, retired people who a lot of them used to travel internationally, I guess, for business or for some reason or another, they've, they've learned to speak English and they want to stay sharp with it. So they want to like practice. And so they'll walk around with you for the day and it's like a matchmaking. So you, again, there's, you, if you Google online, the service, it's, um, they, you fill out a little form and you tell them which day you're looking at and you tell them what your interests are. And if you say, I'm interested in golf or I'm interested in shopping for a dress or I'm interested in um, learning more about, you know, some part of Japanese culture, um, they'll match you with someone who has some expertise in that or has some interest in that. And then they give you the contact information and you email the person back and forth and they kind of act as a little, um, you know, they help you with a little um, travel advice before you even get there. And then you meet at an assigned time and place and they give you six or, you know, four or six hours of walking around, in my case, in Tokyo with me. And uh, it works out great. So you get your translator, you get your, um, you get your train tickets. The other big one, um, which takes thought and it takes, you know, you got to be a little bit adventurous when you go to Japan to do this. So you're not allowed to take uh, golf clubs and you're not allowed to take luggage on the trains. <laughs> There's just no room for it. And it's, and it's just not, you know, you just don't do that. And so the way they get around that is they have this luggage transportation system. It's called the black cat. And the, and the reason it's called the black cat transportation, it's like FedEx or UPS. If you're a little used who stays in fan. Um, <laughs> it's, I can't believe they don't, they don't, uh, I'm just waiting for for Black Cat to start sponsoring. Uh, yeah, exactly. The Black Cat Cup. <laughs> it's like a third, yeah, a third warring family <laughs> in the uh, tour sponsorship wars. But uh, the Black Cat, they call it the Black Cat. It's it's a yellow circle with a black cat and is their logo in the middle. And they're everywhere. They're at they have a little desk at every um, like hotel lobby on the corner of every street, and certainly in the airport, there's a massive operation. And so the way it works is when you land, you get your luggage off the luggage carousel at the airport, and then you go over to the black cat counter and you tell them which hotel you're staying at. And, you know, you say goodbye to your luggage and you get on the train then with nothing but your wallet and, and you know, your, your passport stuck in your pocket. 
and magically, and I, I mean magically, the luggage appears at your hotel and it, the nicer hotels, they even take the luggage up and put it in your room before you get there. And then when you get to the hotel, you would want to tell them then, oh, I'm playing golf at Naruo the next day. I'm playing golf at Nasu the next day. And then they would send it from the, the hotel to the golf course. And then you would have your, your luggage up in your room, right? And you take, you know, shower and you go to bed. And, and in the morning you wake up and you put your golf club clothes on. But then you take your luggage back down to the lobby and you tell them which hotel you're staying at the next day and you say goodbye to your luggage again. And then you go to the golf course and you play all day and you're and sure enough, your your golf clubs have made it okay to the golf course and you play and, and enjoy yourself at the golf course. And then you're just hoping that when you get to the different hotel that afternoon, you to, that somehow again, magically, your your luggage has made it from the first hotel to the second hotel. But um, it's always worked out for me. And so the black cat. Uh, so you got to learn about the black cat if you're going to go to Japan and you plan on moving around a lot um, from location to location. All right. Well, that's good advice. Uh, so earlier you mentioned that there is a handful of clubs in Japan that are widely considered the top clubs that are, that are kind of assumed to to have that status. What are those clubs? Uh, just tell me a, li- a little bit about each. Sure. So I don't think it would be many of them here would be in dispute by anybody if you asked 100 people in japan i think most of these would would be all agreed on it's there's not a lot of uh movement up and down the rankings in japan so uh kasuma gaseki um which obviously is in the the news this week um the the, the venue of the of the olympic uh golf competitions that's right there's 36 holes there it is a big brawny golf course it is a busy place it is a active you know and they're proud of their heritage of hosting tournaments. They are very interested, I think, in how the course stands up to the modern game. And and obviously they brought in um, Logan Fazio to redesign uh, the course under the tutelage of his father. So Kasuma Gaseki would be 36 holes. Um, The equivalent there would would probably be, uh, you know, like a winged foot type situation. Um, Bordering Kasuma Gaseki is Tokyo Golf Club. Um, and the relationship between those two would be very similar almost to a San Francisco golf club versus an Olympic. You know, Olympic's a busy place. It's it's known by the casual fan. If you're really an architecture geek or a golf history geek, you probably would 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 like a chance to play San Francisco golf club even before Olympic, even though more people in the general population have heard of Olympic. So so that relationship exists. Tokyo Golf Club, like I say, they share a fence line. Tokyo Golf Club is much more private. It's much quieter. It's uh, it's like a Marion or uh, almost a, a National Golf Links of America, I would say, where it's you can trace the history of the game. Or sh- maybe a Chicago golf club would be a better comparison. Chicago golf. We'll go with Chicago golf because um, because Tokyo golf is not the original golf course. It's it's moved several times because of they lost their lease once and and things like that. It, it's it's kind of and, and because of the changing nature of the game of golf over the last hundred years. So very similar to Chicago, where it, you know it started in in a different Downers Grove, I guess, and then moved to uh, to Wheaton, where it is now. But um, yeah, so that would be uh, Tokyo Golf. You've got Hirono, the most famous course in Japan, the best course. It's always number one in the rankings. It's always in the top you know fifty of the world rankings. It deserves to be. Hirono would be like uh, the Pine Valley, I would say. The members there are definitely very golfy. They are proud of their golf course. It is an extremely difficult golf course. Um, the holes are all memorable. It's it's uh, the views are spectacular. The shot values. I mean, however you want to judge a golf course, it's there for you. And no matter what kind of criteria you use in determining whether you like a golf course or you think it's a good golf course, Hirono would score very well. Um, so Hirono, I would say, would be like um, Pine Valley. 
and the par the par threes like Pine Valley at Hirono are iconic, right? Instantly recognizable. Photos yeah. shared all over the place. Those are the images that come to mind when you think of the course. That that's sort of like Pine Valley. Hirono has has that kind of character. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Naruo um, would be um, another one. It's that's kind of down in the same neighborhood as Hirono. It's down. It's down more towards Kyoto, Osaka. Down. So you're talking about a several hour train ride from Tokyo down towards the the, the southern part of the main island of Japan. But Narua would almost be like a uh, sand hills or, or prairie dunes, not not visually, but because it's kind of off the beaten track a little mm-hmm. bit, and it's and it's probably more of the hardcore golfers that are going to know about it. You know, you like I say a lot. You know, if you're a golf fan or an architecture fan, you know about um, prairie dunes or sand hills. But it, it's going to take a little bit more effort for most people to get there than it would to to uh, to play Wingfoot or to play uh, Tokyo Golf or something like that. At least as far as the travel and stuff like that. And um, and again, everybody at Naruo. If you remember it in a row and you're playing golf in a row, it's because you really like golf and, and you're into it. The other one I would say that I got to play, um, there's a golf course called Nasu. And Nasu would be equivalent to Seminole in the United States. And I say that, again, not because of agronomy or where it's located. It's the opposite of Seminole. It's up in the mountains. It's way up in, in you know, it borders a national park um, a couple hours north of of downtown Tokyo. And when I say it borders national park, I mean, it, it's like playing golf in Kauai or something where you're overlooking just these massive valleys and mountain peaks. It's just spectacular. And the, the Imperial family has their vacation home is there. And the reason I say it's like Seminole is because um, most of the members of the other top clubs that I just mentioned, Kasuma Gaseki or Hirono or Tokyo Golf, Nasu is a place where they would like to go in the summertime when it's hot and humid. So right now they would get the heck out of Tokyo for a long weekend and they would go up into the mountains of Nasu where it's 20 degrees cooler and not as humid. And they would play golf um, up in Nasu. And it's, um, you know, you even you see like the bags on the bag rail and they're all, you know, they're all from famous other golf courses um, or the bag tags on their bags. They're all from other famous clubs and guys use it like as a second club to go up there and play. And it's it's got a wonderful kind of culture around it. They've got their own like lodge house that's almost like a dormy house at you know, like at Pine Valley or somewhere. They've got this wonderful outdoor onsen, which is like an outdoor steamy bathtub. Um, theirs is a real one as they'll point out to you. Most of them are like just piped in water. That's like a hot tub at most clubs, but theirs is like actually bubbling up from, from the ground and you can smell the sulfur in it and stuff like that. And you sit outside after you're done playing and it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. So yeah, those are, those are the main ones. As far as new stuff, you've got Yokohama golf club, which is post-World War II. And now it's, um, Bill Core. That was a Bill Core and, and it's, um, it's kind of built in, you know, the core Crenshaw style with the scruffy bunkers and the, you know, kind of his his ideas on what how golf should be played and shot values and things like that, and and you can kind of tell. And again, it's it's almost like if you think of what in your mind a Japanese version of a Corin Crenshaw golf course would be like, or a Bill Core golf course, and then you get there, you're like, oh, this is kind of like a this, this kind of what you would think it would be. It's it's yeah. uh, you know the trees are a little bit different and the grass feels a little bit different, but but. You can kind of understand that, yeah, this, the guy who built this is the same guy who built some of those places that I loved back in, back in America. And then, how about Kiwana? Kiwana is, uh... yep. Oh, yeah, I forgot Kiwana. So Kiwana is the Pebble Beach. So Kiwana is the only one of the Golden Age great golf courses, famous golf courses in Japan that anybody can play. It, it's a resort. It is. Uh, it's. Uh, you take a train. South of Tokyo, it's right on the coastline. The, there's 36 holes there, but the Fuji course is the is the famous one. 
and um, it sits up on the cliffs. So it's it's oceanside, but it's up it's up. You're you know you're a hundred feet above above the water, um, just just like you are at Pebble Beach. You know you're not it's not a links course at all. You're you're up above, but very similar agronomy to um, to the Monterey Peninsula, uh, kind of with the fog rolling in and out. Unfortunately, the hotel is not of the, of the standard. It it is very run down. It's it's um hmm. I want to choose my words carefully because uh, I was a guest at a you know especially in a foreign country. But but I think most um even most Japanese hardcore golf fans natives would tell you that Kawana um could be doing better than it is right now. It's owned by a large hotel chain. They own several resorts, and it does not seem like in the last um at least in the last decade or so there's been much investment in the hotel or in the um the golf course the bones are all there it's still a great place to play golf but it's not what it could be i guess and, and not what it should be not what it should be maybe we could talk uh, a little about kasuma Gaseki. that's the as we said earlier the the venue for the men's and women's olympic golf competitions this week you know, we, we've already seen the men take the course on. Xander Schauffele won gold, uh, Rory Sabatini silver, CT Pan bronze. It was a, a fun last round, just a, a delight to watch. But, you know, th- to be honest, and, and I wasn't really sort of attentive to the architecture of the course as I was watching the tournament, but but a lot of it sort of washed over me. Like, it, it, it looks pristine obviously like it looks absolutely beautiful and, and like uh it's it's brilliantly taken care of uh, as a golf course but what what are maybe some of the architectural details that i missed or some of the things that stand out about the golf course itself that maybe i could look for when i'm watching the women play the course yeah it's so as it was told by me by by a couple of different members of kasuma gaseki including um a couple of different ones that were decision makers um, in the process when they were awarded the Olympics. Uh, Japan was and and Tokyo was when the, you know they were the winning bid was announced. Golf is one of those venues that's if you're going to make changes and things that needs to be done ahead of time. You can't just put it together quickly. It, some thought needs to be given to it. And so the decision to with some of the changes again. This is what I was told was very much. Um, with the thought of hosting the best players in the world and, and and accommodating huge what was expected to be huge crowds, and so you know they brought in uh, Fazio Inc. Tom Fazio, from what I was told, only made one visit. It was really uh, Logan Fazio who made the uh, who made the changes. The the major one of which was they had double greens. So so um, Kasuma Gaseki was one of those clubs that 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 had the the uh, the double greens that you know. Again, a lot of that's another one that's really kind of clickbait. So, summer and winter greens, basically, Cat, right? Summer and winter greens. They were not original to the original Golden Age golf courses. So when we talk about uh, Charles Allison, uh, he did not build the double greens. Um, but mm-hmm. Kasuma Gaseki did have double greens. And from what I'm told, I, I didn't see it before um, they were there. It was a rare example of, of a course where the double greens were both good and some thought was put into them at, at a lot of courses and a, a couple of the ones that I visited Kawana actually still has, they still have a couple of double, uh, of, they don't have double greens in every hole, but they still have a, a few holes where they, they do have the second green. Um, they're really just an afterthought. They're, they're like temp. If, if you've played golf in the you know upper Midwest or whatever, I, I grew up in Cincinnati, we would have winter greens and, and they're just round circles. Um, yeah. kind of yeah, on the, the, other the temporary of the greens that we all know of, you know, when a green is being worked on, you put the temporary green 50 yards short. That's the, yeah, that's right. And, and it, a lot of places that's about what they were in both design wise and thought wise, strategy wise, there wasn't 
much else to them other than that. You know, you had you had the real hole uh, with the bunkers and the fairway bunkers and the curve of the fairway. You know, everything was designed for the main hole. And then the second hole was uh, the second set of greens were just on the other side of the same bunker. In some cases, like the slopes of the bunkers and stuff didn't even make sense for where the other green was. But that was not Kasuma Gaseki. At Kasuma Gaseki, they had put thought into it. And and the, the men who had been working on Kasuma Gaseki over the years, um, from what I'm told, uh, they did a very good job in a, in a rare version where both greens um, were good and both greens had strategy enough strategy to them where there was even some question of which which set you thought was the better golf course or which one was pre- um, preferred. Mm-hmm. Um the, those were removed, and so they, those were all gone, uh, taken out for the Olympics. And I think that work started like 2014, 15, 16, I think. 2016, I think, is when Kasuma Gaseki reopened um, with only one set of greens. From what I've seen on television, what you've seen on television, and from what I've seen in the pictures of what it looked like before that, it looks like they took two small greens and made it into one big green. But some things you can look for if you're a fan of architecture is that on some sides of the greens and on some of the holes where there were bunkers, you know, in front of the greens, the, the, some of the bunkering is original and they call them Allison bunkers. They literally call them the Allisons. Um, and the Japanese um, big golf fans, they'll tell you on which golf courses, which bunkers are still original Allison bunkers. One, one that, you know, was pointed out to me and has you know, been mentioned several times, the 10th hole at uh, Kasuma Kaseki um, that you'll see next week, the, the bunker in front of the 10th hole is still an original Allison. So even though there were two greens there at one time on that hole, at least um, when they combined it into one green, they were still able to, you know, that, that bunker still did remain from a practical standpoint though, the greens are much, much bigger than they used to be. So they're all, the greens are all, you know, one big green instead of two, generally speaking, smaller greens. What's, what's one hole out there that you think is, is pretty cool that might not get featured on the telecast, particularly like, like the 18th hole. We see a lot of the 18th hole during the uh, Olympics coverage. What's another hole that people might look at and and say, Oh, there's something kind of cool architecturally going on here. Yeah. I'd say it's funny. The 17th and 18th holes are like the least representative of the other uh, holes on the golf course. And certainly the least representative of Japanese golf. I mean, 18 to me looks like, like 18 is very American TPC, Tokyo, (laughs) little pond in front of the green. Yeah. 17 is like just a massive, it's huge. The 17th green is, it's like twice as big as any of the other greens, or at least it it felt like that to me when I was there. And it's, it's definitely one where you're like, when you look at it, you're like, Oh, this isn't, this can't possibly be what they felt. I mean, there's no (laughs) way they would have designed something like that in 1931, 32. So that looks different. Um, yeah, that, that tenth, I, I like the tenth hole. I mean, I think a tenth hole is is, is kind of a neat. It, it's interesting when you watch on television. There's, I, I put it on my Twitter account. There's two trees on the right hand side. They're like uh, evergreen trees that they're. I've never seen evergreens like in the United States. They grow straight up, like something maybe you'd see at the Pacific Northwest. But they're not real wide trees. They're just really tall, and they've been there since the beginning. And um, the men, they never. The men, the first day, the pin was on the right hand side but they put the tees on the far left-hand side. And so they didn't really, unless you were playing a big draw, that you wouldn't really flirt with the uh, the trees, and especially if you're a professional golfer. For me, when I played, the, the, the tree was very much in play. Uh, if the tree, if the tees are in the middle of the of the teeing box and that pin is as far back right as it was for the first round of the men, um, you 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 have to hit a cut on a, on a par three. I mean, it's a it's almost a dog leg par three. So um, yeah, that's that's an interesting hole for me. I, I mean, I like six. I like seven. They're all, you know, I think interesting. Eight, um, six and eight have the trees. And so they, um, those are two holes where I, I think it's, yeah, six, six and eight. They have trees that are, so they have, they'll have one lone tree 
positioned very close to the green. Um, and it's these trees are groomed. They're like bonds. They're like giant bonsai trees. I mean, they are the trees have numbers on them and, and each tree has its own, you know, file on, on, you know, when it was last trimmed and raised the skirts on the trees and all these things. And, and on, on, on some of the holes of Kasumagaseki, they still have, the trees are used like as an aerial defense and they really, um, they limit the playing angle of, of where you can approach, um, the green from. You know, it's like a lot of places. I mean, I, you know, would I prefer uh, to see that the world gets to see Hirono uh, on television? Of course, you know, if Fran- France in for the next Olympics, would everybody like to see more Fontaine instead of <laughs> instead of Le Golf? TPC Paris. Is that what it's going to be? It is. Yeah. Um, of course. But um, golf. At, at least it's Riviera when it when it comes to L.A. At least we're <laughs> I'd rather see Bel Air, but I uh, see Riviera every every year. But um but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I say that as a geek. I mean, there's practical things they got to keep in mind with, with, you know, getting 25,000 people there a day and moving people around and stuff like that. So, and, you know, everybody talks about the format and things, but, uh, you know, it's, it's start, it's entertainment. It's, uh, you know, it's interesting. And I mean, I, I enjoy the Olympics part of it, the lesser known players that I don't know about and, and I haven't heard of from the, the countries. I, I enjoy that more than I do the, you know, the stars of, you know. Yeah. The, the two great strengths of Olympic golf right now are the, the extreme international element in the field like it it is the most international tournament in golf it it could uh it could hardly not be um and then also the fact that second and third place matter that you know on sunday we're thinking about not just who's going to win but who's going to uh, get a medal so there's i mean and that's probably why i wasn't paying as much attention to the golf course uh on the last day of the men's tournament because there was so much to think about other than that but it's good to have a a few things to kind of key in on as the as the women play the same venue um so japanese golf history is tremendously interesting we can't possibly do justice to it in this last (laughs) segment of the podcast but you know a lot about it. You've done some research on it. So maybe you could tell me the story of how the first golf course got put in the ground in Japan. So, you know, Japan was close society. Um, it's always been that way. It's more less so now than it was. But at one time, even, you know, there, there were restrictions on where uh, folks from the Western world could live. And it was essentially just traders, you know, were confined to the port cities and the harbors. Um, a gentleman named Arthur Groom. Uh, G-R-O-O-M. Uh, he was living down in uh, Kobe, which is a port city uh, to the south. Um, he was an Englishman. He had you know, grown up uh, playing golf with like a lot of his guys. Um, he was bored. Um, he missed playing golf. And he went out on a sandbar in uh, out in the harbor and was wagging the ball around um, like I would do if I was in a place with no golf for several years. Uh, that lasted for about a year and, and him and his buddies pretty quickly decided, Hey, that, you know, I forgot how fun golf is. We, let's, let's, you know, let's do this for real. Uh, so 1902, 1903, he moved up to, uh, he, he built a golf course up on top of Mount Roku, R-O-K-K-U. And it is, uh, a couple thousand feet above the Harbor in Kobe looks down and, uh, they formed Kobe golf club. So Kobe golf club was the, uh, first golf course in, uh, Japan. They were the first guys. It was at the beginning. It was um, it was Westerners who would you know practice the golf other places. They built this golf course up on top of the mountain to get away from the heat and and the humidity. And also that was where the I guess they were allowed to and the land was. Kobe Golf Club is still there, and it's awesome. So it is eighteen holes. It is forty one hundred yards. They will loan you a set of hickories to play it. Um, they have restricted flight balls. And the views are just spectacular. The the only thing I can compare Kobe Golf Club to 
would be like if you've ever been to like the Grand Canyon and you've stood on the rim of the Grand Canyon and looked down at the Colorado River and like you see like the the boats, you know, you see the boats and things moving. Or if you, you were ever like at the top of one of the skyscrapers in New York and you look down in New York Harbor and the boats look like little toy boats. When you're playing Kobe Golf Club and you're looking down at the harbor, it's you're that high up and the view is that spectacular. And you play 18 holes and it's just it's just awesome. Um, they've got the 18th they found uh, a couple years ago when I was visiting. They had found the original rollers for sand greens. They had when it opened, it had sand greens. They found the rollers, and so they're in the process of building one of the sand greens back on 18th. So when you play the 18th hole, you can either play it to the the, the grass green or you can play it to the sand green. It's the only sand green I've ever you know an experience with. And they've got these rollers. The clubhouse is just it's this wonderful hundred year old place that they. Um, you know, they, uh, the members appreciate and it's, it's part museum and part golf club. And it's just, it's just awesome. That was the first one. Um, it spread, um, the first one with the Japanese, with the natives was, um, Tokyo golf club was started not too long. Um, after that it was, uh, 1914 is when it was founded. As you might expect, it was founded by, um, Japanese guys who had played golf, learned to play golf in other places and then brought it back to Japan and wanted to do it. Um, the first golf course was um, for Japan was actually laid out by an American. It was laid out by a guy whose name I will butcher, um, Walter um, Farag, I think his name is. Um, he built Lakeside in San Francisco and he, bu- and he built Annandale Golf Club in Pasadena. And I, I don't really know why he was in Japan, um, but but he, he was the one who was there and, and they talked him to land on the golf course. So J- Tokyo Golf was founded in 1914. The, the key um, moment... In, in Tokyo, in, in J- Japanese golf history was um, the lease expired. So they when they built the golf course, they built it in a field um, that was they didn't own. It was on leased land. The lease expired in 1929. And at that point, they thought, well, we got to find a new golf course. And um, one of the members, a man named um, Kamio Otani, took it upon himself and said, we got to build a new golf course. This is our opportunity to build a real golf course um, like they have overseas. Otani had worked um, in London he had played all the Heathland courses. He knew all about Harry Colt and, and Swinley Forest and St. George's Hill. And Otani was into it. Um, he was the one who said, let's hire Harry Colt and bring him here. They hired Harry Colt. Uh, they sent Harry Colt 1,500 pounds. Harry Colt never showed up. I don't know why. Uh, nobody knows why. I mean, Harry Colt was an older guy and getting to Japan was really hard. So Harry Colt didn't go, but um, Charles Allison did instead. Allison was a you know contemporary and was was a partner of Colt's. Um, Everybody listening to Friday probably knows, but he was involved in places like Milwaukee and, and Pine Valley. He was in the United States, so it was a little bit easier for him to get over there. He sailed from the West Coast of the United States. He arrived in December of 1930. He brought his wife with him, and he brought his builder with him, a gentleman named George uh, Pinglace. That was in December 1930. And in the 60 days from when Charles Allison stepped off the boat in Japan until when he left 60 days later, he, he changed the world of, of Japanese golf forever. The, the best comparison that I can make would be Alistair McKenzie's three-month or four-month stay in in Australia. It's the same kind of thing where, you know, he was only there for a couple months, and, and we always forget these days that um, most of these guys, you know, because of the travel and stuff, they never saw the golf courses that they built. They were never finished. The grass wasn't even growing by the time they left. But what what Allison did is, is the same thing that McKenzie did for the Australians, which was he, he brought them his philosophy of – how to design a course, how to route a course, the shot values, what what made a good golf course a good golf course. And he and Penn Glace together 
explained how to build a golf course, you know, the right techniques for bunker building. And, and when I say Allison bunkers, that's what we're really talking about. And fortunately, the men that he uh, partnered with, you know, Otani at uh, Tokyo Golf and and th- there were a bunch of them, um, different places. I won't, I won't give them all the names because I'll I'll mispronounce them. But but the one thread that these guys all had in common was they were all educated in other parts of the world or they had gone to work and they knew a little bit about golf and, and they were all members of Tokyo Golf. Um, but they also had little side projects going on. So, so again, just like Mackenzie, when he went to Australia, he was there to build the new Tokyo Golf Club. But once he got off the boat, almost immediately, um, all the different members of Tokyo Golf that had all their little side side hustles going on, they all jumped all over him. And and in two months, uh, he went to you know nine different golf courses and helped build you know Hirono and helped redesign Nauru and helped redesign Kasumigaseki and you know put his stamp on all those golf courses. But beyond that, he also left behind these gentlemen, these um, five or six or seven different guys who all um, had learned from him. And fortunately, they were all kind of young enough guys um, and they had seen enough other golf courses that um, they were able to, to carry it on even after he was gone. So that, you know, even after all the devastation of the war and, and stuff like that, um, men like, uh, you know, Kenya Fujita, who designed Kasuma Gaseki and, and Takata, who, who was Hirono and the and they helped rebuild a lot of the golf courses that were either completely destroyed or had to move or, or you know, had major changes done, um, you know, during the war or, or, or through that. And some of the courses had even gone fallow. So, so fortunately, a lot of the guys at least had firsthand direct connections back with Allison. Yeah. And your comparison of this trip to Mackenzie's trip to Australia is really apt because the big story about Mackenzie's journey to Australia and, and the time that he spent there isn't necessarily that he put all of those courses in the shape that they currently are. It, you know, they weren't finished when, when he left, but he managed to leave an impression on people like Alex Russell and Mick Morcom and give them some of the inspiration and knowledge that they needed in order to carry out Mackenzie's work and to do some of their own work. And it turned out to be excellent and to, to set the course for Australian golf course design until the present day. It seems like much the same thing happened in Japan with Allison's visit. Now, I mean, as you said, most listeners to this podcast are going to be at least a little bit familiar with Harry Colt and, and Charles Hugh Allison. But, you know, just to give a, a general idea, Colt was a revolutionary architect, right? He was one of the first architects to really blend his courses into the landscape. One of the early architects to adopt the strategic philosophy of, of John Lowe and others and to start to apply it to the courses that he was building and rebuilding. Allison was Colt's partner, Colt's protege, and he ended up going to Japan in Colt's stead. Um, you know, do, do you have a sense of Allison's style? Because, you know, here's the real question I'm asking. You know, I've seen some Allison courses primarily in the Midwest, and maybe it's just how they have evolved in recent years. But the greens and the bunkers are so much more kind of basic and simple at those Allison courses in America than they are in Japan, especially those some of those photos that you've posted on Twitter of Hirono and other courses, you know looking at the bunkers and greens that were built at Allison's project sites, you know, they, they look a lot like Alistair McKenzie's work that they have these kind of fascinating frilly edges and, and the greens are, are wild. And it, it just strikes me that 
that work is a little bit different than the work that Allison did a lot of other places. Would you agree with that? Is that just me looking at photos and getting the wrong impression or, or you know, what, what's going on there? I, I mean, it, it's tough. You know, each golf course has different crews that actually built the courses. Each one has different superintendents. You, you've always got to be really careful of that. Um, but uh, I mean, Milwaukee's got fantastic bunkers. I mean, they've got about the steepest bunker faces I've ever. Right. But, but different. I mean, Milwaukee's bunkers are way different than Hirona's yeah, bunkers. They are. I, if you go back and look at pictures though, from when the courses first opened, I would say not similar you know, enough, a little bit, you know, different kind of sand and soils and stuff probably, um, ahead of that too. Uh, you know, Allison, he definitely, he worked fast. We know that. I mean, he, um, the, the famous story is, you know, he, when he designed, uh, when he got to Tokyo, he, he went out to the course, he walked the new property for a couple of days and essentially created like a, a homemade or hand-drawn topo map. And then he retreated to the Imperial Hotel, uh, which is an old Frank Lloyd Wright, beautiful hotel um, right next to the, the main uh, railroad station there in Tokyo. And he locked himself in the room and he like did the routing in seven days um, and, and came out and like handed it to him and was like, here's your golf course. Um, and then, you know, he did kind of similar things when he routed some of the other golf courses for these, like I said, these side projects for that these guys wanted done. So he, we know he was a fast router. Um, I would say pretty consistently good par threes. I mean, it, it's, um, I don't, you know, I don't know whether he started the par threes or not. Um, you know, that's how he started or what his techniques were, but, but one way or the other, he ended up with some pretty darn good par threes. I, I believe the par threes in Arona are the best in the world. I mean, they're just spectacular. They're diverse as far as the length of them. You know, they're diverse as far as the shot required. They're, they've got, just like Cypress Point, the 16, you know, the 15th and the 16th holes of Cypress Point, you know, it, it's the perfect, you know, like the quote, you know, it's the perfect melding of, of, of Mother Nature and the golf coming together along with Alistair McKenzie knowing what he was doing. Um, Hirono is the same where there's, you know, the the fifth hole at Hirono, the, uh, the seventh, the Devil's Divot. Uh, three of the four are like it's the perfect carry. You know what I mean? Like over the wall, you know, from the one, from the teen ground to where the, the green sits, it's like, it's the exact right distance for a middle iron or, you know, and it's like, it's just fortuitous. It's like, it's like if a kid was designing it in his backyard, like the, the distance is just, it just worked out perfect where they just like had a, you know, they didn't like bring bulldozers or anything. They just, it just, they, but the fact that he was able to see those would tend to make me believe that he was probably looking for those first and then did the others kind of around them. Yeah. So I'd say that it's the other thing is, though, is, again, I don't think you can underestimate that um, it it, these top clubs in Japan, it helps them. um, It helps kind of defend their how outstanding they are. They have a built in defense, which is the the kind of deferential nature of the Japanese culture when it comes to these Allison being Allison. They respect that and they honor that and protect it. And you don't have a lot of meddling with it. And greens committees doing different things, or at least I, I did not observe that. So um, they, they've got something that they can kind of trace it back to in, in a culture that um, is going to respect that. Now, there, there's a downside to that, which is there's not a next wave of new Japanese architects practicing today. There's no young guys that are. I mean, it's unfortunately most of the work is, you know, it's all done by brand name guys from the United States or from, you know, you know, Martin Eberg or, or, uh, Gil Hans is the architect of record for uh, Tokyo Golf, and, and they bring their crews over there and, and do the work. There's there's not a group of Japanese architects or, or guys over there that are um, you know making a lot of decisions. It's pretty they pretty much defer to 
the, the big kind of brand name guys and and um right yeah you know in general the the future of japanese golf is is maybe a, a little bit in doubt right there there are these clubs that are kind of very devoted to their traditions as they should be but as you mentioned maybe there's not a next crew of golf architects uh who are coming up and, and building new courses in japan maybe and correct me if i'm wrong primarily because Japan maybe doesn't 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 need more golf courses. The the population isn't getting any bigger, and and the golfing population isn't getting any bigger. That's right. There there won't be any new you know private clubs built. They're not needed. I don't think that there's a appetite as you know for financing them. And the land the land is another issue. So the land we didn't talk about the land, but the land is extremely. Uh, there it, there's a reason why the you know the the Allisons besides besides Allison and and his crews. Besides that, the other reason why there hasn't been a lot since then or a lot of great stuff since then is um, it, the, the sites that he was given to work with were not allowed to be replicated. It, you know, it started in the, in the buildup of the war, the, the, uh, the militarization of the country. They wanted all the, the good land for crops and, and you know, they needed the, the, the land for war production, basically. But even post-war, all the, all the sites for land that, that you could get, I guess, permitted for, you would say, were all just really crappy, hilly sites that were just, you know, they had a blast into hillsides and stuff like that and the routings are all just cart ball golf and it just um that's really hard to overcome some of the pictures i've seen of places no matter how good of an architect it was um they weren't going to be able to overcome that but i i wonder japan was hot enough for a while with golf that and it was so expensive that for a while it was cheaper for those guys to fly to pebble beach or to fly to royal melbourne and if they wanted to play great golf in public golf or places that they could actually get on, that was easier for them and cheaper than them than, than sitting around hoping that someday they would be invited to play, you know, Hirono or Tokyo golf. I wonder if there's not an in-between there that, that abandoned dunes type um, setup uh, or, or Cabot or whatever, uh, you know, where a guy could go for, uh, you know, three days and, and play three or four really good golf courses that were all clustered together on, on, you know, some resort that's, that's farther away um, from the from the main areas of Tokyo and where the population bases are, I wonder if that is possibly a little bit more doable. A huge advantage that they have, as far as the infrastructure setup, is, is certainly that train system. And man, it's it's nice for you know if you can imagine like just going on a three day plane or a three day train ride or a trip where you could play you know sand hills and prairie dunes and and southern hills and in between you're you're going you know two hundred miles an hour on a train while you're drinking a Miller Lite. Um, and it's all air and probably some and some beautiful scenery along the, the way. Beautiful well. scenery that uh, that makes getting around pretty easy and and pretty pretty doable without having to you know schlep your clubs through Atlanta Hartsfield Airport and stuff like that. Um, it's it's a elegant way to travel, really. Um, the way that they do it. Well, so Michael, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You've definitely uh, given me some some more stuff to look for as we watch uh, the women play Olympic golf this week at Kasuma Kaseki. Um, but also, I mean, certainly some uh, <laughs> fantasizing about future trips to Japan. Uh, hopefully that will become more of a possibility uh, sometime soon. It's a tough invite over there, but if you, if you ever find yourself uh, with one or a, a foot, you know, even a, a toe in the door, it's worth pursuing. It really is. It's uh, it's a different enough that uh, it's, you know, doesn't come along every day, but I, I'm glad when I, I had the opportunity that I did it. That's for sure. I mean, I, I just want to. I just want to go ride the train. That, that's all. Yeah, <laughs> I don't even need to play cool. golf. I just want to yeah, go ride the train, cool. go to Tokyo. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Yep.
This episode was edited by me, Garrett Morrison. If you'd like to keep up with all the golf action at the Olympics and elsewhere, the Fried Egg has a newsletter. It's written by Will Knights, and it goes out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning. Just gives you what you need to know about what's happening in the golf world. If that sounds interesting to you, you can subscribe for free at thefriedegg.com. Thanks for listening.